0: Thanks, Kevin. Um, If you can have your Bibles open to that page, Um, we're going to go through actually most of the uh, most of the book uh, of Jonah. So if you can have your Bibles open to Jonah, that would be great. But let's pray that God will speak to us. Lord, we give you thanks that you are a speaking God. We thank you that you have caused this Scripture to be written, and we pray that as we delve into this world, uh, this Word, that you will send your Spirit. Help us to see. Uh, what you have to, uh, to say to us. And we pray that your powerful words will be spoken this, mo- this morning, that it may go into our hearts, a fertile, a fertile grounds, and, and bear fruit in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter Schaeffer's play, Amadeus, in the play, the young Salieri, I think it's the first picture coming up, an aspiring composer makes a bargain with God he says Lord make me a great composer let me celebrate your glory through music and and be celebrated myself make me famous throughout the world dear God make me immortal after I die let people say speak my name forever with love for what I wrote in return I vow I will give my give you my chastity my industry my deepest humility every hour of my life and I will help my fellow man all I can Amen, amen, he says. And he, of course, keeps his end of the vow diligently. He keeps his hands off of women, works at his music, teaches music for free, helps the poor. His career goes well, and for a while he thinks that God is keeping his end of the bargain. But then Mozart, whose middle name is Amadeus, loved by God, appears. And Mozart is this lewd and vulgar, self-indulging man who was, of course, enormously talented, much more talented than Salieri himself. And he can't stand it, and so he says to himself, it was incomprehensible. Here I was denying all my natural lust in order to deserve God's gifts. And there was Mozart indulging in all directions, even though engaged to be married, and no rebuke at all. And then he goes on to say, to God, from now on, you and I, we are enemies, you and I. Now, that might sound completely foreign and awful to you, but Jonah, Salieri, you and I have a big thing in common. We're not all that different from each other. We all want to work for God's blessings. We all want to deserve God's blessings. I don't know if he caught that uh, in what Salieri said. That defied the definition of grace. He says, "Here I was denying all my natural lust in order to deserve God's gifts." We don't want things for free. We want to get. We work to get paid. We work to get good grades. We work hard to save money. We everything around us says we have to earn our keep. We have to work to foster friendships and relationships. The fact uh, fact is that we want to earn these things because as we earn these things, it becomes ours, ours to keep. So our natural mode in anything is to work to earn God's gifts. But at the end of the day, that's the definition of self-righteousness, isn't it? The belief that we deserve God's good gifts, that God owes something to us, and as natural this self-righteousness is for us, it's also deadly. And I hope you can see that Jonah was self-righteous. Because Jonah, think about what Jonah did. Jonah, it was amazing. Jonah became foolish enough to have, after sinking low, foolish enough to listen to God, and he went to Nineveh. He saw something that he could only, we could only dream of seeing, which is a a capital city of a great, a great empire, Assyrian empire, turn to God. He saw people and the king of that city wear sackcloth and ashes and crying out to God. The king pleaded with the city, stop doing evil things. And people stopped. And he did it by preaching one sentence sermon throughout the city. This is the thing that we dream of. But then he can't believe it. He looks at it and he can't believe it and not in a good way take a look at verse one he said he was greatly displeased and became angry what seemed what happened seemed so wrong to him he does something that he uh, was completely reluctant to do in chapter one he prays and he prays to god this prayer oh yahweh Is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Yahweh, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. He can't believe that God had saved this wicked city because he he knew that Ninevites were terrible people. He wanted God to punish them. He knew that they didn't, they, they didn't deserve God's mercy. What they deserved was punishment. And in the, the, the flip side of that is that Jonah thinks that he is self-righteous. I mean, Jonah thinks that he deserves God's grace. That somehow something about him says that he deserves God's grace when Ninevites don't. Perhaps maybe it was the fact that he was a um, uh, Yahweh worshiper. He worshipped the right God. Maybe it was plain and simple racism. Oh, well, I'm a Jew. These people are terrible people. Maybe it was the, his identity as a prophet. Well, I'm a prophet of God. Of course I deserve this grace. Something in Jonah made him think that he deserved God's grace when Ninevites did not. You see, there is... Just as much sin inside of the church as there is outside. And inside of the church, the biggest sin that we could have is self-righteousness. That's our biggest temptation, this feeling that since we come to church, since we tithe, since we sing God's praise, since we try to live our lives in God's, uh, God's way, that we somehow deserve God's grace, that we somehow deserve God's favor. But uh, now we're coming to point one. Look how dangerous this self-righteousness is, how blinding self-righteousness is. It blinds us towards sin, it blinds us towards God's grace, and it blinds us through having true perspective, true value over things. Jonah was blind to sin because he was self-righteous. He saw how even at the, we saw how even at the belly of the fish in chapter 2, if you go back, at the belly of the fish, as he sinks to the lowest of the low, at the depth of the sea, at the belly of the fish, he didn't see what he did was wrong. He never repents. He never says, I am sorry for the things that I did, even in the bottom of the sea. He never says he's sorry because he believes that he was right all along. That's what he says in this chapter. That's why I ran away, because I knew you were going to do this. Self-righteousness, by definition, makes us think that we know better than God, that God is in the wrong and we are in the right, that God should do what we think is right, not what he thinks is right. And God should give us what we deserve. Self-righteousness also made him blind to God's grace as well. Throughout the chapter, God pursued Jonah. Throughout, I mean, throughout the book, God pursued Jonah. And uh, once again, God sent the fish. God sent the storm. Um, in chapter two, we we realize that his repentance or his prayer in chapter two is completely shallow because he does not realize how how sinful he was. Uh, because he doesn't rec- recognize his sinfulness, um, he doesn't recognize God's grace in saving him. And now, um, look at how he's completely oblivious to what God is doing. In uh, verses seven uh, six, six through nine, six, six through eight, God provides things for Jonah. When Jonah walks away, uh, walks away, God tries to woo him back. At first, he provides a leafy plant in verse 6. And then he provides the warm in verse 7. And he sends the scorching wind in verse 8. Also, that Yahweh could teach him a lesson about who he is. The lesson that he sorely needs to learn. But, he's oblivious. In fact, he's so self-focused and self-absorbed that he doesn't see God in these things at all. He never stops to think, maybe God is trying to do something here. Maybe God is trying to teach me a lesson. That thought never occurs to his mind because he never, um, he, he, he always thought that he was in the right. He once again pouts like a child, and in verse 8 he says, "Ah, oh, I'd rather die. Self-righteous people can't see God or God's grace because they never needed God. They never thought that they needed God's grace. And so it's not something that they're looking for. But also, self-righteousness blinded him towards uh, seeing the real value of things, things that are really, really important. I mean, Jonah has lost all sense of value, hasn't he? So... When the city starts repenting, he doesn't stay in the city to help people to repent. I mean, say that there was a citywide repentance in Hong Kong. Wouldn't we go out there and help people to see who God is? That's not what he does. He leaves the city, and he pouts, and he argues with God, and he sets up a camp outside of the city, I think because he's waiting to see if maybe God will change his mind and punish these, these people. That's what he's waiting for. He's outside of the city, hoping that God had changed his mind. And then God sends this leafy plant and takes it away with the worm and sends a scorching wind, um, and he gets really angry, angry enough to die, he says in verse 9. And what God says to Jonah in verse 10 is that you've lost your perspective completely. He says you value this one plant, one plant that sprang up overnight, that that went away, and it just won. You value this plant more than you value this city and the people, 120,000 children um, who can't tell the left and right, and all the adults and animals there. He says, you have lost perspective. And that's what self-righteousness does. We're so angry or we're so self-absorbed in what we think is right, we lose perspective of what's important, what's important to God, what should be important to us. Self-righteousness is dangerous, but you should know that is the default mode of our being. That's what we want, what we naturally do when we walk away from God. That's the way that we want to operate. We want to work, and we want to deserve God's grace, and we think we can earn God's gifts. And so, I think the biggest question i mean biggest thing that you should uh, you should ask is what makes you angry because jonah was an angry man because he was a self-righteous man what makes you angry what makes you angry at god what makes you want to walk away from god for salieri and jonah it was a thought of undeserving people receiving god's grace that sense of fairness that made him angry what makes you angry when good people suffer, when the wicked prosper, when you do everything right, you've come to church and you've lived your life as a Christian, and things just don't go right. You don't get into the right college, right job. Your relationships are messy. Is there a sense of entitlement there? God, going, God, I know better than how uh, than you, and how you should be running my life. You should be running in this. You're uh, running this world. And when you get angry like that, ask yourself, am I blind? Am I, have I lost perspective? Am I blind to my sin and how sinful we are? Am I blind to God's grace, what God is doing in my life right now? Am I blind to what's really important? The thing that I'm angry at, is it really that important? Or is there something else that's more important that God is trying to show Self-righteousness, is a, uh, that place is a very, very dangerous place to be. In fact, it is a place of idol worship, and that, that is ultimately self-destructive. Once again, see how self-destructive self-righteousness here is. Jonah is an angry man. He's angry in verse 1. He's angry that God is not angry in verse 2. He'd rather die in verse 3. He's angry again when the plant dies, angry enough to die. Jonah's anger is killing him. He's a miserable man. He's a slave to his emotions, his bitterness, his weakness, his idea of God, his idol of God. He doesn't worship God. He worships an idea of God that he invented himself, not God in reality. Remember, go back to chapter 2, verse 8, what he said in his prayer, this self-righteous prayer chapter 2, verse 8, he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The problem is that as he's praying this, he's thinking about the sailors and the pagans out there, but it's him who is worshiping an idol, an image of God that he invented, not the sailors, not the Ninevites, Jonah is the one who's chasing after the worthless idol because Jonah worships an idea of God, a what, what, uh, God that Jonah has invented. So literally, he ran away from the real God in chapter 1. And now he pouts about what the real God in, uh, did in this real world. He is forfeiting the grace that could be his as well. The grace of being known as a forgiven person, a a person who's loved by God. He's miserable because he doesn't understand the grace of God. He knows it in theory, but he hasn't experienced it. He's basically like the older brother in the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15. He made... Remember the older brother who stays outside. He's mad that... God, that, that his father has thrown this party for the younger brother. And at the end of the story, we're not actually too sure what happened to the older brother. He's, he's outside of the father's house while the party is going on inside of the house. He stays outside. But, and just like that, we're not told whether Jonah actually ever came into God's fold. Chapter 4 ends with the question, Should I not be concerned about this great city? Should I not be concerned for these lost younger brothers? And Jonah's answer is not there. We're not sure what happened. He might have repented, I hope. Or he might have been wasted, he might have just wasted away, smoldering in his anger and self righteousness. And if he if he stayed that way, his anger would have consumed him. He will die in his self created hell. God might just say, well, fine, stay angry. In fact, this is how C.S. Lewis and his great book, Great Divorce, uh, envisions hell. Everyone who gets to hell chooses to go there because they would rather be miserable in their self-righteousness than accept the reality of God. He writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find, those who knock it um, is opened. For Jonah, he couldn't stand the idea of God who shows mercy towards the undeserved. And so so he walks away. And for many of us, it's other problems that we have. We think that God should give us life and health, wealth, life of good grades, good college, good spouse, good children, good work, good retirement. We don't expect much from God. And when God actually uh, takes some of these things away from us, we, we get angry because we never worship God. We are worshiped an idea of God that we created in our heads. As Tim Keller often says, we, we worship we worship. uh, counterfeit gods, gods that are not gods. Some of us are miserable right now for that reason. We're angry at the world and and at God because God should run the world our way. And that's self-destructive. For those who continue to run away from God in this way, God will ultimately say, your will be done. God will remove himself from them, And that will be hell, no goodness, no mercy, no grace, constant self-inflicted wounds and evil, miserable dark place without any light where only God's wrath remains. Self-righteousness is destructive. It removes us from God's grace. So, which God do you worship? God of your imagination Or God that's revealed in the Scripture, God who is beyond our understanding, God whose ways are higher than our our, than ours, God who is both more holy than we could ever have imagined, and God who is also more loving than we could have ever, ever imagined. Do we trust that God? Do we trust in the in the God of the Scripture? The thing about this passage is that we're not too sure what happened to Jonah in the end. But we are very sure of what kind of God that we should be worshiping. We are very sure of what, kind, what God is like in this book. It's that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Throughout the whole book of Jonah, God pursued Jonah time after time. And I think this is really funny. I mean, in verse 4, God asks this question, right? He pouts and he goes out, and and, and God asks this question in verse 4. Is it right for you to be angry? And how does Jonah answer? He doesn't answer. <laughs> he ignores this question completely. He ignores God completely because he doesn't want anything to do with God. But look how gracious God is, how graciously he deals with Jonah in this chapter. He provides a leafy plant so he could have sunshine. And then he, remove, uh, he removes it through warm. And maybe that's not enough. God sends a scorching wind. And then Jonah gets just angry again. And he asks the same question in verse 9. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, it is. I'm angry enough to die. But then God then talks to him. Patiently, as a father would talk to his child. What the whole book shows us is this great capacity to sin. Our heart that's prone to wander, our heart that's prone to make idols, our heart that wants to earn our salvation and walk away from the grace that's been offered to us. But more than the greatness of our sin, our greatness, great capacity to sin... The book of Jonah is about God's even greater capacity to forgive. While our sin reaches far, God's grace reaches even further. The book has been about our sinful heart but also about great gracious heart of God, our maker. Once again, let me turn to CS Lewis's book Great Divorce. There is a character in the book who is in heaven who had been a murderer. And a person who is visiting this person asks, aren't you ashamed of yourself? And then he answers, no, not as you mean. I do not look at myself. I've given up myself. I had to, you know, after the murder. This character had Jonah 2 moment, didn't he? The lowest of the low, bottom of the sea, belly of the fish, And he says, at that point, he had to give up himself. He had to give up self-righteousness. He had to give up trying to earn his way up. He had to rely on God. He had to rely on God's grace. And to this, the visitor says, well, he's different. He's lived his life well. He's done his best. He worked. He lived differently. Then he says, I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. At hearing this, the murderer then says, Then do, at once, ask for the bleeding charity. Everything here is for the asking, and nothing can be bought. Everything in heaven is for the asking, and nothing can be bought, and that's living by grace. Everything that that, that we could have is by grace. That's living by grace. Everything can be had if we only ask because, what we, um, uh, because we, have now, uh, we have now been bought by the bl- blood of Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. And now that the life that we le- live is not ours, it's Christ living in me. And that means everything that Christ deserves, that everything that Christ earned is ours, freely. That's what that means. But it does mean putting aside ourselves putting aside our works, putting aside our self-righteousness. We have to learn to live by grace, not by works. That's the, that's the lesson that God was trying to teach Jonah and the lesson that we need to learn all of our lives. Success in Christian life is not based on commitment, discipline, zeal, or holiness. What you have achieved We're not asking God to come and help us to live our life a little bit better. We're asking God to come and break us, to come and help us to be crucified on the cross so that we could live his life, that God could create us a life that we couldn't even have imagined for ourselves, to be that new creation, one that is unimaginably better, the one that Christ deserves. As we end this series, this book ends with that question, should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh? And of course the answer is yes. God showed his concern for the city of Nineveh. And God showed his concern for Hong Kong and London and Sydney and and places all around the world. God showed his great concern for all of us because he gave us more than we could ever, ever have imagined. He gave us his son. And in his son, as he died and rose again, he gives us all that he deserves, all that he earned. And you should be thinking to yourself, I don't deserve this. This grace is scandalous. How could this be? But then, that's the God that we worship. But then, God has always been scandalous in this department. God has been gracious. Abounding in grace, praise God let 's pray Lord Jesus, Lord God, we thank you so much for your Son Jesus Christ, who died for us on the cross that, that, that gives us we couldn't what well, we couldn 't have imagined the life that you deserve, Lord, it is given to us for free, Lord. Help us to break free from self-righteousness. Help us to break f- free from this slavery to ourselves and to our sinful nature. Help us to live by grace at all in all things. And as we rely on you, as we die to self, may we experience your greatness coming in. May we experience you becoming greater and us becoming smaller. And may we be a church and a people of God that knows the great power of God and the great grace of God and the great love of God, because we depend on you in all things that we do. And may the people in the world see the abounding grace, the scandalous grace that has been offered to them as well through us. Lord, help us to live by grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.